Hi, Sean. Hi, Mike. Can you guess what my favorite holiday is? It's Long not, it's, it's, it's not the, the Doctor Who 50th anniversary. <laughs> that, that only comes around once in a lifetime, but this is an annual holiday. Mm. My favorite holiday is Thanksgiving. Oh. And I think we should celebrate Thanksgiving by tying this show in somehow. As a person that doesn't actually eat meat and won't consume a turkey, let's talk about like cinematic turkeys. Let, let us, so to speak, devour. Yes, please. The, uh, the, the succulent fa- juices. The, the failure birds of cinema. That's right. Let's let's do that today. Uh, let's talk about Bonfire of the Vanities, uh, Brian De Palma's uh, 1990 adaptation of Tom Wolfe's novel, and uh, Monsieur Verdu from Charlie Chaplin, both films that were not well received in their time. No, but one one has grown as the years have gone by to where it's now uh, an esteemed classic for the most part. <laughs> I wonder which one that is. The other one. Not yet. Not yet. Maybe it needs another 40 years. The, the De Palma army marches on. <laughs> also today, I think, you know, tying in with uh, Verdue, we should talk about Charlie Chaplin. Um, seems appropriate. Seems appropriate. And uh, pick our Cinema Central movie feast. How's that sound? Will there be meat eating at your Cinema Central feast? Yes, there is. Thank God. Well, because it's not a feast <laughs> if an animal doesn't get devoured. There's a technicality with that, but we'll get to that when we come to it. Right. Uh, but you want to talk about uh, Verdu first? Yes. Let's hear a clip. Yet life is wonderful. What's wonderful about it? Everything. Spring morning, summer's night. Music, art, love. Love? There is such a thing. How do you know? I was in love once. You mean you were physically attracted by someone? It was more than that. I suppose women are capable of something more. You don't like women, do you? On the contrary, I love women, but I don't admire them. Why? Women are of the earth, realistic, dominated by physical facts. What nonsense. Once a woman betrays a man, she despises him. In spite of his goodness and position, she will give him up to someone inferior. That someone is more, shall we say, attractive. How little you know about women. You'd be surprised. That isn't love. What is love? Giving, sacrificing. The same thing a mother feels for a child. Did you love that way? Yes. Who? My husband. Don't I was. That was a clip from Monsieur Verdoux from 1947, uh, Charlie Chaplin's film uh, that was actually sparked by uh, an idea from Orson Welles that was then uh, given to Chaplin, or Chaplin took it from Welles. Uh, there's a little bit of a debate on how that went down, but I thought it was I thought it was amicable. Well, you, We'll get, I think we'll get into We can talk about the history of it uh, later on in the discussion, I think. Um, I mean, I don't know too much about it, but anyway. Uh, I, I, I did not read the Wikipedia page for Monsieur Verdict. So. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> you were not an expert like myself. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, the film stars Charlie Chaplin as the title character. Uh, he's a, a mannered gentleman who just happens to uh, be a bluebeard type where he marries uh, rich women and then bumps them off. Uh, and we find out over the course of the movie that he's doing it for altruistic reasons or, you know, as altruistic as you can be when you're murdering somebody. Um, 
and it's a really interesting movie. You know, it. You know, this the theme today is turkeys, and it's pretty apparent why this movie was rejected uh, in its in its day. It's it's a very it's a very very black kind of comedy. Um, obviously, the premise makes it so, um, which is compounded by the fact that it stars Charlie Chaplin, who is the one of the most beloved uh, you know movie stars of all time, pretty much. And it's his it's his first departure from the character that had made him so successful over the previous thirty years. Exactly. You know, it, with the you know with having. Um, you know, over half a century um, between its release and now, it's clear that the movie is a solid film. You know, it's it's not. You know, it, you, you're not concerned about you know the Chaplin persona as much as you know people were when it was released. I'm sure. Right, we're not as attached to the Little Tramp as as hey, people speak for yourself in, in 1947. <laughs> right. we, we didn't we didn't grow up with it in the same way that they did. Right. Uh, it wasn't. Yeah. It. You know. We, you couldn't go to the movie now and see a new Charlie Chaplin movie and you know fall in love with the character all over again. Right, he was he was the most famous man in the world. He was you know kind of the definition of cinema for for thirty years. And that's what makes this movie so interesting. Is can you imagine somebody nowadays in that? I mean, there's nobody that's like Chaplin, but somebody that is beloved like that doing a movie this you know dark and and I mean it's a pretty I audacious I, film. I don't I don't think performers do things like that. They do things like that in their, like, personal lives. Like, somebody like O.J. Simpson will murder his wife <laughs> in reality. Or, you know, like, Tiger Woods will, will you know, get beaten up in his car or something. Right. But but actual performers, like, you know, wouldn't, well, they just, they don't make movies like this if their reputation is built on, like, a, a family-friendly kind of thing. And there are very few stars who are who are even like that. Right. Considered uh, untouchable like that, or whatever. But it's true. It's true. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it would be like, you know, somebody like Tom Hanks, actually. Right, which, I, you know, there are a lot of parallels between this If he made, like, a, and... a Harmony Corinne movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's in Trash Humpers. I think he's in there. He he may be, like, the third uh, dumpster humper, or whatever, in that film. Uh, well, let's talk about the movie itself, then. Because... Uh, you and I have both seen this before. Uh, yeah. I was eager to, to watch it again, even though it's only been a couple of years since I last saw it. But um, I really think this is a, a fantastic movie. I think it's up there with some of Chaplin's best films. I wouldn't put it, you know, it's not, it's, you know, it's it's on the outside looking in on like a City Lights or a Gold Rush. You know, I don't think it's perfect. I think it's his best talking picture. Uh, I'll go there. Um, well, and speaking of talking pictures, what's so interesting about this movie is... You know, the tramp, you know, Chaplin was the holdout from, you know, entering the, the sound era. You know, City Lights came, you know, a couple of years after sound uh, kind of revolutionized cinema. And then, you know, uh, Modern Times came, you know, a decade later. Right, um, and that's still essentially a, a silent Essentially movie. a silent movie for all, you know, all intents and purposes. And uh, it's so interesting because if, if this was the first Charlie Chaplin movie you'd seen, you'd be like... This guy loves to talk. <laughs> I mean, this is a really wordy movie here. Yeah. Um, and I think it's great. I think the screenplay is great. I think his character, I think Verdu as a character is so well conceived and just out the box. He's such a great, I mean, I mean, he's not the tramp. He's not, you know, he's not as iconic as that, but he builds such a strong character with this guy through his words and his actions and mannerisms and stuff. I think it's great. 
Yeah, I think uh, we 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 picked these these two movies both because they were they were flops, they were turkeys, but also they have a lot in common thematically with the with the kind of satire they're going after in in kind of critiquing capitalism. So what what we'll get to Bonfire of the Vanities and how successful that is. What what do you think of of Verdue as as satire? Because Chaplin he was a banker and he lost his job at the start of the depression and in order to provide for his family, his invalid wife and their young son, he he uh, marries these rich women and steals their money and kills them. And he justifies it to himself as like a necessary uh, cost of doing business, that he's he is sacrificing himself for his family by, you know, doing these things that he knows are wrong. These grisly things. But he's got to do it to, to protect uh, the innocent. Yeah, I mean... You know, I think that's all a bit, uh, you know, kind of ridiculous and, and silly. So I don't really subscribe to the, uh, you know, the reasons behind it and all that stuff. And, you know, the, where this movie falters uh, is in the end when he does, you know, kind of preach a little bit and kind of justify his actions. Um, which I think, especially, you know, this, this is one of the things that does date that movie is, is, is that kind of stuff at the end of it. Um, because for me, honestly, it's I just like seeing Chaplin trying to kill people and failing at it, and I think it's really funny. Um, you know, I, well, this was one of the the main complaints against the film at the time of its release was that it was immoral because it was celebrating this this wife murderer. Like the, it was not a good time for for dark comedy. Yeah, well, I mean, this is two years after the war ended. I mean, yeah. it's you know, it's a it's a pretty bad. And, then, and that's not the kind of comic that Chaplin was really known for. He was the sentimental, you know, little tramp fighting against the you know the machine, and here he's embodying the machine and and kind of critiquing it from within. Yeah, absolutely, and and you know, I mean, it does work for me. Like to actually watching it this time, the ending where he there he has kind of two scenes that um, where he's kind of. Um, moralizing at the end of the movie that first when he's um, when he's finally been sentenced to death after they caught him and he's and he's um, in the courtroom still and he kind of gives this speech um, and then he, he kind of continues that thread in, uh, once he's in the jail cell and he's talking to first a reporter and then a priest that comes in and the first time I saw this movie I really rolled my eyes at it I was like oh here we go you know <laughs> Chaplin's gonna get on his, you know, his soapbox here for a second or whatever, as as he does in the Great Dictator. It's, he gives yeah, as this, he does in the, the Great speech Dictator. at the end that's very heartfelt, but it's also kind of. It's a little obvious and, and ridiculous. It's a little. Time. It's a little on the nose. And yeah, I don't think that's the case in Verdue at all. I think there's a lot more. Let me finish. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this time watching it, I actually was for some reason in my head that scene. I might be confusing it or mixing it with The Great Dictator. Um, for some reason, I, the first time I saw it, or my memory is the first time seeing it, that scene went on for a long time, um, and and I felt like he was really strident in it. But watching it this time, number one, it's, it's a lot shorter than I remember it. And he's... Um, it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel like an agenda anymore. Like the first time I saw it, I felt like maybe I just was expecting an agenda, and I just took it that way. But this time, I think he's he's a lot more um, not oblique, but he's a little uh, you know he's playful more in this um, in that scene. He's got a couple of jokes, and and he really doesn't um, 
dwell on it, what he's saying. You know, he says he says his piece and someone asks him, what do you mean by that? And he says, you know, oh, the warmongers, you know, they, you know, they kill people by the, you know, thousands and that's okay. But, you know, what does he say? He has a line like numbers nullify or numbers, numbers sanctify. Sanctify, yeah. But, but he doesn't like... He doesn't expand on that. He just he kind of says his thing, like I said, um, and then he walks to the gallows, and, and it's over. And I, I think it works well this time. You know, it's still it's it's a good ending. It's not a great ending. It's not you know the ending of City Lights or something. Obviously, this is a different kind of movie than that. But it doesn't have. Well, I think I think there's a, a kind of innocence and, and naivete in the ending to the Great Dictator that is just kind of a why can't we all get along kind of thing in, in the face of like Hitler. Right. And then seven years later, Great Dictators released in 1940 and, and Verdue was coming out, like you said, after the war. Uh, I think that kind of, of innocence Chaplin has abandoned to a much more complicated and, and kind of expansive view of the world. One that's not a, a happy view of the world no, at all. No, it's very cynical. But it's, it's kind of, it's open to all of these different avenues and ways that, that people, uh, justify their own horrible actions. Well, and where, where I think that works best in this movie is not at the end when he gets to kind of to give his speech, but when he, um, there's, he, so to talk about the movie itself a little bit, it's, since he is, you know, married to so many different women and it, it's basically him having interactions with these different women um, you know, one is like a socialite and one is a spinster and one is a, you know, a floozy and uh, one is this kind of philosophical girl that has been released from prison for, for larceny, um, petty larceny as she A, a girl that he's going to kill but uh, recognizes something of, him, of himself in her and so lets her go. Let's her go. But, but they have two scenes together. One um, oh, earlier in the picture and then one after he's kind of lost everything before he goes back to jail. And they have the and I like those scenes where they're having a philosophical moral debate with each other, but it's it's you know conversational and it's a little more realistic than uh, than him just at the end like you know here's my piece kind of thing. Yeah, she she seems to me like a a, a character out of a film noir. Like she she would be somebody's femme fatale perhaps in a different movie. Uh, she's got kind of a, a kind of a Lauren Bacall esque quality, yeah, to her. Men, it might just be like the voice and the hair, but yeah, she's kind of there's she's got a, sultriness. She, to there's her. A, a kind of post war weariness, yeah, weariness and weariness about her. Yeah, well, speaking so of, I, <laughs> you can go. when 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 the when the film came out, it was it was like we said, it was not well received by by critics and uh, i think it was the last movie he made in the u.s before before he he fled well um, he fled for other reasons yeah well <laughs> he, he fled for for a variety of legal reasons um but uh one person who really really defended the movie and he did so over like three consecutive weeks in time magazine which was unprecedented at the time was one of uh one of the country's first great uh film critics and that is uh James Agee who was also a novelist and he absolutely loved Monsieur Verdu he hailed it as like one of the greatest works in the history of cinema and uh I did a little research and I got out my AG on film and I actually read his reviews and he makes a lot of, of really interesting arguments about the film. And one that what struck me the most is that it's not just a, a critique of, of capitalism. It's also a, a critique of war. 
And there's uh, Verdu is is not just a, a businessman. He is uh, he's like a uh, all of us as we justify our actions in war, in killing massive amounts of people in order to protect the innocent. And he sees uh, Chaplin's family, his his wife and his son, as kind of Im- embodiments of like the good half of him that he is locked away and isolated in order to justify killing all of these other people in order to protect that home, that innocent home front. So I, it's a really uh, kind of fascinating way of looking at the film to me. Well, it seems very clear. I mean, because uh, he shoots and uh, those scenes where he is in his country home with his family, which are, he only goes there twice in the movie, I think. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's a, it's apparent from the very first shot. He comes in, his son comes running to him. The sappy, you know, uh, Chaplin's uh, score comes on, um, and it it turns into a different movie for those scenes. The the way that the the first shot we see of his wife is framed, it's it's you're looking through the house, and like the front door is open, and then there's a back door open onto a backyard where the wife is is sitting in a chair in this very idyllic uh, garden setting, and and we're with the camera, we're outside, so we're seeing her in a door frame. Like she's, you know, been put in a picture, like, you know, she's been uh, like confined in this space that he has created to, to keep her pure. He, and he actually mirrors that image later in the film, um, at the wedding, uh, there's a big wedding that he has, and this is just a little tangent, but there's a, there's this big wedding that he's, he has the last time he's going to get married, but then complications ensue and we can talk about the complications because they are really, really wonderful. Um, but he ends up having to escape because he can't let his two wives see him. And so it does the exact same thing where he's, it, it, it frames the house. There's a window on the right and there's the door at the far end on the left. And he jumps out the window, runs back through the house and out the door and then over a fence and out the, you know, and it's exactly the same framing as it is earlier in the home. But as you were saying, yeah. And that's like his, his last escape. So, uh, the, the way AG sees it is that, is that, Verdu has has isolated the separate parts of himself, the the good and the evil. And one of his justifications at the end, when uh, he's like talking to the priest and everything, is that is that uh, good needs evil. It's like the shadow cast by the sun. And so his particular pathology is comes about because he has isolated those those two parts. Like his wife was happier when they were poor, right? But he because you know because of society or because of whatever you know drive. Uh, that he has has decided that he needs to be rich in order to provide and make and make his family happy. And then when he loses their house, their mortgages into the stock market crash, and all the money that he's stolen is lost, and he can't pay the mortgage. That's when like his whole kind of world collapses. And then off screen, we learn that the family has died. Right, and that's and that that leads to the scene where he. Um, meets up with the young woman again who is now who was previously poor and she has now um gotten hitched to a arms manufacturer yeah. or uh, and so she's now she's now got a lot of money cuz uh, the war is on or whatever um and and he and it's interesting because that scene actually really does actually remind me of city lights because um it shows the character as destitute as he's as we've ever seen him. Right, that's when he's at his most tramp-like. Right, um, 
and and then they have their second philosophical discussion, and he's a lot more bitter now. And she says, "What happens to the man that I knew before? You know, you seem completely changed, and all that stuff." And yeah, there's obviously a transformation of that character across the movie, and that's why I mean the character is so wonderfully uh, written and portrayed in here is that you get he really goes on a journey here. Um, what, what, what do you make of the end? Because he he could escape. At the end, he's recognized by by family members of, of one of the women he's married and killed, um, and he locks them in a in an office, and could very easily escape, but uh, he goes back to and joins the crowd and just kind of waits for for them to to figure out where he is and and catch him like he like he wants to be caught. Yeah, well, he says, "I'm going to meet my fate." You know, he tells the young woman, "I'm going to meet my fate now." And I think that I think that the conversation that the two of them had had in the restaurant uh, before he was recognized, um, I think it just kind of lets him know that the you know the jig is up, and this is you know there's there's no more running, there's no more point to run, there's there's nothing for me here. Um, Do you think that's just out of a desire for self-punishment, or is it a kind of, of self-aggrandizement? Because he he's very performative about the way that he, you know, lets himself get caught. Like, he, he demonstrates that he could have escaped if he wanted to, but he very just explicitly. chose not to. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's the latter, absolutely. Um, I, yeah, I think he... Um, you know, it, it's like, it's like um, in a way, although there, there's a lot more... Um, moralizing and uh, ideas behind it. But it's kind of like the, the thought of, you know, they always say uh, criminals return to the scene of the crime. They just can't help themselves. Right. You know? Um, I think that he, yeah, he wants everybody to, to see the reasons why he did this. You, you know? think he's proud of what he's, he's done? Pr- yeah, I think he's proud. Like on a, on a performative level or on a moral level? I think, I, I think with Chaplin, it's hard to separate the two. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on here. Uh, yeah, and that and that is an interesting point. Is like the the artistry of the the ways that of his deceptions mm-hmm. is something that he takes uh, great pleasure in. Oh, and he and he films them just lovingly as a, as a as a director, and you know he's really meticulous. I was thinking about that. There's one section where he, what scene is? It? I think it's when he's first he's trying to poison somebody. He tries to poison a few people in this movie, but there's a scene. I think it's when he's trying to poison the um, the kind of ditzy, like, floozy woman. And it cuts to him going into different rooms and doing things. And you could easily cut out certain shots in that section. Yeah. Um, but he, he's very methodical. And he shows himself going to each room and grabbing that thing and then going into the other room and getting the other thing and doing all those things. Because he likes the process, you yeah. know. Um, speaking of process, though, uh, this is a comedy. Yeah. Does it work for you as a comedy? Do you do you laugh at this movie? Uh, not as much as with most other Chaplin films. It's more <laughs> it's more of like a uh, it's more of like a smile kind of thing than than like a guffaw. I kind of agree with you. I mean, I think it's funny throughout, and I, I yeah, I'm not you know uh, doubled over um, laughing, but it's so interesting when he pulls out those quote unquote you know the classic Chaplin moments and he does it a few times in this movie and he still got it i mean it's really it's really phenomenal well with 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 chaplin and keaton i i admire more than i i laugh really like i, I think i laughed more at bonfire of the vanities but oh gosh that that may have been more at it than with it but we'll, I, that was actually going to be my main question with that and, movie but we'll get to that but that also you know i, I watched uh 
Verdu by myself and Bonfire the Band News with my wife, and you laugh more when you're around other people right. than, than when you're by yourself. So, Well, but in this, I mean, he does some, there's some great physical comedy. You know, he falls out the window, um, you know, when he's trying to uh, romance this socialite woman, and he, and he uh, gets caught, and he kind of stumbles backwards, falls out the window. Um, and the most Chaplin-esque moment is when he's on the boat, with Martha Ray. With Martha Ray trying to kill her when she's she's um, fishing and, and she's turned away from him and he keeps trying all these things, chloroform, to knock her out and he tries to tie a noose around her neck. And every time she turns around, he gets into the dainty little... Um, you know, it's a one of his little tramp. It's exactly that's what I'm saying. With it's, like his legs crossed and and, he, and he's you know his head down and he's just smiling away, um, and it's just great. I mean, I think it's just hilarious. And but for me, the comedic tour de force in this movie is that wedding um, when he's trying to hide from Martha Ray and and Fred Mertz keeps and looking. Fred Mertz, <laughs> Fred Mertz is there like escorting her around and really taking good care of her. Um, but that scene is just so well. It's so great. Um, the composition is wonderful, especially there's the moment where he first discovers she's there, and they bumped into each other, but they didn't recognize each other. They didn't notice it. Um, and then she goes off into the back of the frame, and you don't see her at all, but there's like a hundred people within the frame, and he's dead center in the front of it, and there, you know, there's people socializing and stuff, and you just hear her cackle. And he, the look on his face, oh my gosh, it's just great. Yeah, she's hilarious. She's great. I think this is a really wonderful movie. I think it's a great showcase for uh, female actors in this. Yeah. Um, you know, they kind of fall into, you know, one-note stereotypes in a way. But they, I think all of the actresses here really... They, I, I, no Cha one, Chaplin very rarely worked with actors who were anywhere near as good as he was, but he always made them look much better than they were. Like if you see any of his co-stars in in like a regular film, they're not they're not that good. But but one of Chaplin's great great gifts as an actor was he always made everyone else in the scene look really good. Yeah, that's that's a very good way of putting it because no one ever will. Uh, steal a scene from Charlie Chaplin, yeah. but I think every woman in this movie uh, holds her own with him oh, in yeah. their scenes. I think they are really, really good. Um, not just Martha Ray, but um, you know yeah, everybody. That, that's, it's like, a quality of, of both Chaplin as an actor and as a director. Yeah, he's very generous, yeah. um, which you know is Limelight is an example of that too. Where yeah, that's uh, that's uh, another film I was going to talk about where he. Where he is with a, another really great actor with uh, with Claire Bloom and and then also uh, Buster Keaton, uh, that that's a, a tremendous movie. It was the next one that he made. I think came out four or five years after Verdu, and uh, that's an even better showcase for for Chaplin as a physical comedian than than Verdu is. But uh, which is kind of baked into the story. I mean, that's kind yeah. of the, he he plays he's like an aging mime. Yeah, five years later. Yeah. Uh, I love Limelight. Limelight, uh, I, you know, I said when we when we started that Verdu was my, my favorite of his sound talking films, but... In but the last 10 minutes, you've changed your mind. <laughs> in, 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 I, I don't know that I've changed You're my so mind. You're so fickle! I don't know that I've changed my mind, but Limelight is, is right up there. It's really close. Well, I'm a King of New York fan myself. That has got some funny stuff I'm in it. I'm just kidding. I, I, I think Verdu is the best. But, um... um Kind of going back to the meticulousness, um, uh, not of the character, but of him as the, the screenwriter uh, and the, the director of the film, um, he goes out of his way, and, it, and it's crucial to this movie, he goes out of the way to uh, 
make you sympathize with Verdu. You know, he shows them, you know, not stepping on a caterpillar and feeding a stray cat. And uh, they're he's vegetarians. A, he's a vegetarian. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he does all those things. And, he, you know, he sees his son, you know, kind of uh, playing rough with, the, with their house cat. And he says, you have a malicious streak in you, which is also a little bit of a joke um, at the audience, obviously. But it's sure. also him showing his compassion or whatever. And I don't want to get into Bonfire of the Vanities right now, really. But it's so interesting because both movies deal with people doing despicable things. But... You know, you could argue if you look at it on paper, what Chaplin does in Verdu is far more, far worse than whatever anything that happens in Bonfire of the Vanities. But he's su- he's such a much more likable and well-rounded and human character than anybody that shows up in that Bonfire. Right, of the and that and that's an, an interesting thing because one of the the main criticisms of the adaptation of Bonfire of the Vanities is that it makes the the Tom Hanks character too sympathetic, <laughs> which is ridiculous. I mean, I haven't read the Tom Wolf, and we'll get to that when we talk yeah. to it, but. Uh, it's it's uh, just ridiculous. But the, I mean, this was also the, the criticism of Verdu is is you've taken the little tramp and and made him very likable and made him a murderer. So what are we Which, as an audience supposed to do? We're supposed to like a murderer? That's too complicated for my you know mind to understand. I mean, that's the annoying thing about general consensus because to me, that kind of concept thing, I'm first in line for that kind of stuff. I think that's great fascinating you know that that get, that'll get me in the seat faster than well it, it's also keeping in in the times with the with film noir because most of the protagonists are film of film noirs are are people who have either killed somebody or have killed somebody in their past and the difference is is that they get punished by society whereas verdu kind of submits himself to punishment. Like, he gets away with all of his crimes. Yeah. And the only reason he gets caught is because he wants to. Right. And it's not it's not the kind of society reimposing order or, you know, fate or God reimposing some kind of moral system on the universe that you get in a, in a, uh, a more traditional Hollywood film noir. Well, yeah, well, you want to talk about God. I mean, it's pretty clear um, the God in this movie is Verdu. You know, he he's smarter than everybody. You know, and then at the end, the preacher comes into his jail cell and he says something about his, you know, eternal soul or whatever. Um, and, Chap- and Chaplin says, very, you know, uh, off the cuff, he says, well, he can have it, it's his, you know. But it's so, you know, he doesn't he's, believe he's, it. He's made his peace with God. Yeah, he he's just need, like, whatever. You he know? doesn't need the priest. I, I'm above him. all that, you yeah. know. Um, so. Yeah, he's he's very much a, a kind of beyond good and evil type figure, at least in, in his own mind. Yeah. He's a he's a perfect. I mean, it, it's great because he he you believe him as a as an intelligent, suave, caring person, and then when he does those other things, uh, you, you he's clearly a sociopath. With that, let's hear some magnetic fields. This is yeah, oh yeah.
So once again, uh, we don't have a whole lot of news to talk about this week, but uh, yesterday the uh, Golden Horse Awards were announced, and this is the, the 50th year the, the Taiwan uh, Film Festival and Award Ceremony has given out the uh, Golden Horse Awards. Uh, Ang Lee was the, uh, the head of the jury, and uh, what they do is they, they honor basically any film made primarily in uh, Chinese language. And two of the Best Picture nominees were, were films that we've talked about before on the show, uh, Johnny Toe's Drug War and Wong Kar Wai's The Grand Master. And also nominated were Jia Jenka's A Touch of Sin, uh, Chiming Liang's Stray Dogs, and the film that won, which, you know, not surprisingly is the one that I haven't seen, uh, <laughs> a Singaporean film called Elo Elo, which uh, I skipped at Biff a, a couple of times in order to watch other movies, because... I thought, clearly merely, you, you, I thought it looked merely okay, yeah. but but Chai Ming Long won Best Director and, and Lee Kang Sheng won, won Best Actor. Both are well-deserved and long overdue, and uh, winning for Best Actress was Zhang Ziyi for The Grandmaster, That's which, deserved. Uh, a performance that she's, we both praised to the skies when, she's we, very good. when we talked about it. Uh, so yeah, it's just it's a it's a fantastic set of nominees, like the four of the five, and it's just something to keep in mind in in the next couple of months when the Oscars come out and Ron Howard gets nominated. <laughs> I don't know. Rush really bombed. I, I did it. Know. Yeah. Uh, well, Alfonso Cuarón then. Yeah, that that's pretty much a lock. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, uh, well, we'll link to to all the winners, but the the nominees. It's a great set of nominees, and I. You know, I, I talk about it every week, but I'm I'm convinced that the Chinese language cinema is the the most interesting and most vital cinema in the world today, much more so than than Hollywood or certainly anything coming out of Europe. Certainly, certainly. <laughs> but well, we'll, we'll I, I, thanks for brushing aside uh, <laughs> all of Europe. <laughs> Europe sucks. Come on. We all know that. Uh, but we'll be we'll be talking more about awards, I'm sure, over the next couple of months as they all start to get handed out. But uh, you saw a couple of, of news items. On well, speaking awards. of awards, yeah, uh, I just saw the headline. But Jason Statham, uh, you know, big action movie star. I, I believe you saw you've seen a number of his films. We'll be discussing one of his films in a couple of weeks with uh, 
Crank. Crank. Uh, that's just you know a few weeks away from here. But uh, he's he came out and said that uh, he thinks that the Oscars should have a best uh, stunt person category, and I think that's a wonderful idea. Uh, the the Golden Horse Awards, in fact, have an award for best action choreography. Oh well, there you go. Which Jackie Chan won this year, and which is I assume is something that he's won several times. I, it's probably going to be called the Jackie Chan Award, probably by this time next year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that would that would. That I think would that'd be, be really cool. I, either either for stuntmen or for for choreography, I think it would be. Well, fantastic. you know what would be cool was you know every year they talk about the Oscar like uh, telecast and how it's all boring and they, there's these songs and there's these long winded speeches and stuff. But then like you know like they do with the musical things or they used to do with the musical things. Do they even do music anymore? I can't remember. Uh, some of the years they cut it out. Yeah, some years they cut it out. Sometimes they don't. But you know. You can do is you get the stunt person for you know the five nominees, and then throughout the show you do some crazy stunt with them on stage, which would be really electrifying television. Yeah, I think I think part of the problem is that most like mainstream Hollywood films, even the action films, don't really have like action choreography or even stunt people that you can see them do things because they're all chopped up so much. It's true. And, like I, I know that there are stuntmen out there, and and you know I think Jason Statham. Is one of like the few big stars that actually employs them, but I know, I know, but I feel like I think like the the best action movies coming out of Hollywood are the really low budget ones, and those are not the kind of films that that the Oscars are ever going to recognize. Something something like Dread from last year is a really good action film, but you're not going to see it, right? Well, and that's a shame. I mean, this is yeah. clearly they're not going to make a best, you know, they're not going to listen to Statham. You know, yeah. but I'd like to point it out just because, you know, maybe enough of us can infect society to where we can start appreciating other forms of art, like uh, falling off of a building. That would be nice. <laughs> uh, the other thing that we came out, there was an article in the Dissolve about uh, animation this week, and um, it, it was talking about how it is particularly the best animated feature category, which is a fairly new category. It's only been around for uh, like a years, little over a decade, I think. Yeah, 2002 maybe. Um, or no, I think it was a little bit sooner than that. Well, anyway, um, and how it's pretty much a child's game. or is, you know, it, The movies that win are ones that are geared towards kids because animation is considered a thing that's for kids. Um, the exception amongst the winners, well, didn't, the article... Didn't Persepolis win? Uh, Persepolis? No, I don't think Persepolis. No, uh, Ratatouille won that year. Oh, uh, okay. Mm -hmm. um, let me see. Well, I mean, there have, there have been nominees. There have been nominees. That was, that was the issue. Of the issue of the article was kind of that they will nominate a movie um, that kind of goes outside that animation, the, uh, you know, children's box or family-friendly box or whatever, but um, they never win. The exception being Spirited Away, um, which was Miyazaki's uh, only Oscar win, I, I think. Um did, but, it, uh, did the chorus win? Uh, Sylvain Chaumet's... I don't think so. Film. Nope, it didn't even get nominated. There you go. But Happy Feet won. <laughs> well, see, the article... I don't agree with the article completely. I, I agree... The, uh, the overall theme of the article is that, you know, the stigma of animated films being just for kids should be, uh, you know, washed away. And that, But if you look at the winners, like, you know... A movie like Wall-E, while yes, it's got cute robots and stuff, is not just a kids' movie. And Ratatouille, sure. I don't think, is a kids' movie at all. 
to be yeah, honest like, with you. Uh, the three the three big Pixar movies are, I, are you know you know terrific works of art yeah. as well as being good kids movies and like the ones that are more you know kid oriented like Finding Nemo or The Incredibles still really good movies. Right. The problem with the best animation Oscar is like Shrek or Rango or, or Hey, <laughs> I like Rango. Um no, but you're right. Yes, the, yeah. which is, you know, it, it's actually if you look at the winners for the best animated film category, they tend to pick the the better of the crop, you know what I mean? Like yeah. last year's uh picks were I mean, it was pretty uh pretty poor the only, the only other one other, other than Brave that I saw was Wreck-It Ralph, and Brave is better than Wreck-It Ralph. So. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, um, I don't know what I'm trying to say about this, but, you know. I, I Another problem is, you know, animation, as Brad Bird has said, is not a genre. It's just a, a tool. It's just a means of telling sure. a story. And so the whole idea of just, like, boxing these movies into one category is really stupid. And, you know... It's rare that a movie will break out of that box and get nominated for Best Picture. Uh, Beauty and the Beast did, um, and I don't know if there was ever another one. Uh, was Toy Story three nominated for Best Picture? I don't think so. Yeah, um, and that's a shame, you know, because oftentimes those movies will get, you know, I I can think of several years. It was uh, the thir- Toy Story three up and Beauty and the Beast were all nominated. We're for all Best, Best Picture. Picture. Okay, well that's good. That's a good sign. Maybe we should cut the segment because I'm realizing that I have nothing to say about it. And I, that I, I mean, we're going to have a lot of time to complain about the Oscars, but the animated film Oscar is like one of the the few awards where they generally do a pretty good job of of covering the best films in any given year. And part of the problem is there just aren't, that, just aren't many, that many uh, animated films, and there aren't that many that are that are really good. So there are more and more animated movies every year now. But I, I don't think I've seen one for this year. I haven't seen any. I, well, I've seen those those Mickey shorts that they're producing for uh, TV, which are really good. Those was are really. Was there a Pixar movie this year? Yeah, it was Monsters University, oh, which yeah. I didn't see. Yeah, um, but you know what I've heard? I've heard Frozen, uh, mm-hmm. which I saw the trailer. I think I saw a couple trailers for, it, and it, I think it looks terrible. It's getting really, really good uh, reviews. So I'm gonna go check it out. It's got Kristen Bell in it. She's cool. Her or just her voice? Well, her voice. Wow. <laughs> So yeah, we'll talk about more as uh, award season heats up here at the end, at the end of the year. And also uh, because this is an episode of the George Sanders Show, and we cannot go an episode of the George Sanders Show without talking about Johnny Toe, who I already mentioned, or uh, Scarecrow. I just want to point out that Mike <laughs> is wearing his Scarecrow video T-shirt, which you can buy from their website and help support the store. <laughs> so let's move on to our person of the week, who is Mr. Charles Chaplin. Yes, let's. Charlie Chaplin. Tell me what you think about Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin's great. He's a good guy. Uh, We talked about Buster Keaton last week, and a long time ago, back for Metro Classics, you and I did a a dueling pair of posts uh, making the argument for one over the other, which is stupid because you can have both. Um, Which was my argument. Well, (laughs) this is a pretty lame argument. Uh, (laughs) Although I did did say at the end, Keaton is still funnier, which I, I, I stand by. Um, but Chaplin, yeah, Chaplin, I think he's great. I mean, there's a reason he was the most popular movie star of all time. And it's not just, you know, it's not just because he's a pretty boy or he's a, you know, whatever. Uh, he's, he's a talented artist that cinema was almost birthed to, to, you know, capture. I mean, really, like, for me, 
No, it doesn't get better. Cinema doesn't get better than uh, the the tramp on roller skates in modern times. I mean, what else do you need? Yeah. You know, who needs who needs CGI space epics? Who needs you know dour you you know French uh, you know <laughs> romances or whatever? Chaplin on roller skates, which he also did in the Rink, which is a short that he did, which is a really great short too. Uh, well, just he's, great he's he's a remarkable physical performer. Oh, he's just, just in amazing! Like the the simple kind of balletic acts of of clownish, clownishness. He's as good as anybody who's who's ever been captured on film. But he's also a really smart guy, and he's really uh, humane as an artist, and he's really concerned with with people and like the plight of the poor and and difficult circumstances that people get get caught in. So he puts those those physical talents to to admirable and intelligent ends. Whereas, you know, there's a lot of of equally talented performers who are not so committed to to bettering humanity. I, I'm glad you brought that up because I was gonna talk about that during our discussion of Purdue. Um, I it used to kind of irk me because some people have argued that Chaplin let the critics, you know, when he was still making shorts, there were people that were hailing him as a genius. And this is when he was still just making very rough and tumble, slapsticky kind of things that yeah, didn't his, have a moral message. They didn't have anything like that. His early shorts are much more anarchic, more kind of Keystone Cops, more traditional silent comedy. And then everybody started hailing him as this genius. And then he kind of, and you know, some people could view it as him putting on airs and some people could be like, no, he's just blossoming as a person. And I used to think that he was just like maybe trying a little too hard. Like he was trying to prove himself, um, by, you know, becoming a studied, you know, gentleman and all those things. And I, and I thought that that kind of made his work a little inferior later on in life. Um, I, I changed my tune on that. Um, you know, I, I, I love the early slapstick stuff. I love all that stuff, but watching as Verdute, uh, as I did, uh, and thinking of him, you know, not just writing the screenplay, which was something that he never did prior to sound. I mean, he just would have an idea and just film it and, you know, work it out, right. you know, doing that. Um, so to have him write like a really witty, funny, uh, screenplay, um, and then also compose the music for it and all these things that which, like, which he had done going back to was city lights. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, he, he went back to Gold Rush later and composed the score for that. And, you know, the circus... Did he write a score for that? Yeah, anyway. Um, I don't think he would have ventured out and tried these things if people hadn't called him a genius. Like, that kind of gave him license to uh, expand his horizons. And he worked really hard at doing those things. Like, that is difficult to write a score for a movie. <laughs> like, and, he, and, and you know, Smile the, is a great... Who's, who's the other... Great director who also writes his own scores. John Carpenter? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can't think of anyone else. Yeah. I mean, well, okay. You, you, I'm glad you used the word great because, I mean, Robert Rodriguez does the same thing. But, uh, yeah. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. He's another director that writes his own score. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to get into that discussion now. I'm just saying. Okay. Um, but, no, Chaplin, I mean, what a career. You know, and, and he was also a studio head. You know, he he defected and, you know, Fairbanks, Pickford, uh, and they created United Artists where he could make movies like Purdue and he could, you know, uh, his first feature film as a director, he doesn't even appear as a star in, you know, right. Woman of Paris is like this drama that's, you know, it doesn't have the, you know, trappings of a Chaplin tramp thing. Um, so he was an artist that pushed himself 
um, to make more interesting and exciting stuff. And I think the world's a better place for that. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's uh, he's inarguably one of one of the most important and and greatest filmmakers over you know, the last 120 years or however long since has been around. Uh, which which are your favorites of his? Because I this is something I, I argue about a lot, and I, I usually tend to pick like the last one that I saw <laughs> as my favorite. But I like the ones that that kind of most meld all of like the elements that I love about Chaplin. So something like The Immigrant that that uh, that is a short, but it starts with the first half being kind of really anarchic and, and funny, whereas the second half is still also really funny, but has more of a social conscience. Uh, I really like that. Also, uh, City Lights, of course, which has all these great comedy sequences and then an ending that just will emotionally shatter you. Yeah. Uh, well, those are those are my two. I mean, it, I would I would say Immigrant, City Lights, and The Gold Rush. I mean, I think that's I, I think the Immigrant is is his best short um, easily. Um, there are other shorts that I like, um, but you're right; they don't have a lot of meat to them. You know, I think One AM is a really great just showcase for his physical talents because it's just him drunk in a you know by himself, um, which is great. I mean, who else do you want to watch drunk for twenty minutes on screen? You know. Um, <laughs> nobody, right? Um, and you know, I like the later stuff. You know, I like Modern Times and 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 those films. But uh, feature wise, I really think that one two punch of uh, Gold Rush and City Lights can't be topped. Um, I really can't. I mean, I you know, I've, I've sung the praises of both of those films on uh, numerous occasions. One that I would like to point out that doesn't get a lot of love is The Circus, which uh, came out between those two. The Circus, I think, might be his, his funniest feature. It's just the most purely funny Charlie Chaplin. It is movie. hilarious. Yeah. And and it doesn't get... You know, I've read criticisms about it um, that don't really hold up when I watch the movie. Like, I, I think I read a lot about it before I'd seen it because it's, it's, it's not as easily seen. Um, I, I'm... I'm Sure, there's going to be a criterion of it down the pipeline soon. Yeah, because they've been they're, doing they're, one they're a year. Out, yeah, um, but they just got city lights a couple couple weeks ago. Yeah, but um, the the circus is just pure joy. I think it's just really great. Uh, one of the the main criticisms, I guess, uh, of Chaplin, which isn't really a criticism because everybody loves Chaplin, but a one uh, reason why Keaton will be put forward as a more favorite director of kind of film critics or, or cinephiles is that Keaton is more playful with film form itself, that he's more of a, of a director of a, of a film artist, whereas Chaplin would just, you know, film what was on screen and he's more theatrical and not as, as showy. Uh, I think that's bullshit. <laughs> what do you think? Um, I think... I think if you're, and this goes back to our argument uh, on the the blog, uh, you know who's better. I think if you view their shorts and their first their first stirrings in cinema, and yes, Chaplin's stuff was prior to Keaton, so you know obviously he made advances that were then utilized later by other people like Keaton. Um, but I think right out the box, if you look at One Week or The High Sign. Uh, the the earliest Keaton shorts, it's apparent that he was much more interested in cinema as as a as a visual medium and how he can use it to his his end. He's much more experimental yes. in his visual approach, but 
but that but that's then, not necessarily the is is, is that, that make him a better artist uh, no and and because like we were just saying Chaplin pushed himself to to try all these other things and I think his his later films are much more cinematic than his early stuff um, you know even you know I there's a difference in the you know five-year gap between um, you know the circus and the um, city lights or whatever however long that gap is or whatever so I think as an as a film artist he I think Chaplin stewed on these things and he thought about these things and he he really made an effort at these things whereas Keaton I think was more of a he never called himself an artist Keaton was just like this is was what I do is my job um, and 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 so he just kind of did his stuff well I think I think the split this this Keaton Chaplin split is indicative of a, of a split that runs all through film discussions that whereas that uh a director only has a visual style if he calls attention to it, if it's something that you notice. Like uh, uh, Howard Hawks will get, uh, will be said that he, you know, he's just working within the classical Hollywood system because his visual style doesn't call attention to itself. Whereas somebody like Alfred Hitchcock is much more kind of ostentatious. Expressive. Like, I am making a film and you are watching it. Or... Uh, for, for a different comparison, like uh, Jean-Luc Godard is very much in your face, whereas uh, Eric Romer has very simple shots that are neatly composed but not ostentatious at all. Uh, and there tends to be a devaluing of the less flashy kind of filmmaking, that it's, it's not as obviously art, so people tend to dismiss it as just putting the camera there. That's and, a very good point, and I, I see you pulling out your book here. Yeah, I got something <laughs> that, that A.G. wrote about this, because this is uh, another of the, the criticisms of, of Monsieur Bardieu at the time, was that Chaplin wasn't doing anything new with film, that it was just filmed very boringly. And we already talked about like the composition of a couple of shots that are really very kind of ingenious. Uh, that are just come about through the building of the set and the way that Chaplin frames it. This is what A.G. says. The art of moving pictures has been so sick for so long that the most it can do for itself is to shift unceasingly from one bedsore to the next. Chaplin, by contrast, obviously believes that if you can invent something worth watching, the camera should hold still and clear so that you can watch it, that it is still and always will be one of the best possible ways to use a camera. Chaplin is the one great man who still stands up for it. And that idea that... He's absolutely right. Put something on screen, you should just be able to watch it. And it, uh, this kind of, this split between the kind of more ostentatious style versus the more restrained style, you see, uh, constant throughout film history. And when, you know, when we talk about action films and how Hollywood action films chop everything up, whereas Hong Kong films more, you know, display what's what's going on on screen. That's the same conflict as the Cha- Chaplin Keaton conflict. Yeah, but I think it's a little more nuanced than that because you know, in the hands of a great artist, you know, someone like Paul Thomas Anderson can do stuff where he does this epic tracking shot that is, um, it, it's it's pretty flashy. I you know that that one in Boogie Nights is pretty darn flashy, but it it serves the the material like it works for this world that he's creating. Um, it's it goes off like gangbusters. I think it's really great. And then you've got someone like Brian De Palma in Bonfire of the Vanities where he does these flashy things and they just freaking annoy you because there's no point to them. We'll, we'll get to De Palma. <laughs> 
But, that was but, my segue. But Paul Thomas Anderson, well, we don't have a segue because we're going to the Cinema Central now. Oh, that's right. <laughs> uh, Paul Thomas Anderson is an interesting case because early in his career, like with Boogie Nights, he is very flashy with his editing techniques and he's making film references and it's all over the place. But with each successive film, his his shots have gotten longer and more static and more composed and more putting interesting things on the screen. And then, But he still them. does that stuff. I mean, he does. There's a there's a PTA tracking shot in the master in the, the department yeah. store that is is fluid and it at least for me it, it I don't I guess it wouldn't. My point is just that there will be blood and, and the master are much more restrained than than Boogie Nights or or Heart Aid or or Magnolia. Well, and this is another this is another thing, and this could, this this is going to spiral completely out of control. But there are people like uh, Paul Thomas Anderson who filmed. Um, the master in like 65 millimeter and, and used it without calling attention to it. Like you just see, you know, like we saw it in Cinerama and it was just a gorgeous visual experience. Um, I'm really hating this tendency now where it's, um, if we're going to make a big budget movie, Christopher Nolan, it had, we have to shoot as much as we can in IMAX with this unwieldy camera just because it's bigger, it's bombastic, and and that to me is just egregious and, and annoying. Yeah. Screw Christopher Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> With that, oh yeah, let's uh, this we could go on about this for for hours, and I'm sure we will address uh, similar issues in episodes to come. But for now, <laughs> let's let's talk about our cinema essential for this week. It is. Feasts. Feasts, because Thanksgiving is coming up, and that is a feast. It is, it's true. So what is your essential film feast? Well, I thought about this um, quite a bit, you know, meaning like at least five minutes of my time was spent thinking about this, Um, because I actually was going to go, I was thinking about the portrayal of hunger and, and satisfying that, and there are things like, and I actually thought about using the immigrant for a second because when they get off the boat, him and Ender Provence, they, they go to this restaurant and they, they get a plate of beans. And it's not a feast insofar as there's a table with, you know, every kind of dish on it and they're just consuming all of it. It's, I'm really hungry and this plate of beans is going to fill me up and that is my feast. And I think that's great. So to that end, I didn't want to pick Chaplin because... You know, we'll talk about we're talking about him to death, but um, but I did pick um, the iconic, the most famous scene uh, in Lady and the Tramp, oh. where uh, Lady and the Tramp go and they get uh, their spaghetti dinner, and you know he's he's Tramp, like Chaplin is a Tramp, and he you know he's a hungry dog, and and they have this meal, and it's and it's what's so great about that feast is there's so much going on on screen in that section. Um, and, and that Lady and the Tramp, I think is, is a, is a Disney movie that I undervalued until I watched it last year. I used to put the others, you know, a lot of the others ahead of it. Um, your, your review made me very much want to revisit it. It is an amazing film. It's, it's a movie that I haven't seen since I was a kid, but I'd never, I never really thought all that highly of. Yeah. And I didn't either. And I watched it and, and, it's really the Disney animation, the classical Disney animation uh, studio running at full cylinder, and character animation has never been topped from that scene of the two dogs eating that bowl of spaghetti, uh, it, which included meatballs. So there's your meat, by the way. Uh-huh. Uh, even though it was drawn, so it's not really meat, but you know, it's it's animated meat. <laughs> uh, 
and and just having that song, that Italian song playing and being serenaded, I mean, it's just the best use of. Uh, I, I was gonna say animation, but cinema that you can you can find. It's just great. Yeah, I thought uh, for a long time. I I, I thought uh, well for a long time since uh, twenty four hours ago <laughs> when we decided that we were going to choose this topic. My 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 choice was going to be Big Night, oh, yeah. which is a movie that I really love from from nineteen ninety six with. Uh, uh, directed by Stanley Tucci and, and Campbell Scott, uh, but that that seems like a really obvious pick. So as as uh, I was listening to you talk about Lady and the Tramp, I thought, oh, you uh, just changed, huh? I, I changed my mind, and I thought, uh, well, I could obviously go with Johnny Toe because he <laughs> is a, a huge part of of so many Johnny Toe movies, and especially his his trilogy of hitman films in in uh, the Mission, Exiled, and and Vengeance. There's a big feast scene where all of the hitmen get together and share a meal, but. Uh, you know, I talk about Johnny Toe all the time, so I wanted to pick something else. But staying in Hong Kong, I'm going to go with Chungking Express. Ooh, yeah. In the uh, the much undervalued and underrecognized first half of the film with Takashi Kaneshiro and Bridget Lin, where uh, after Takashi Kaneshiro's had a very bad day, it's his birthday and his girlfriend won't call him, and he keeps calling other women to go and uh, uh, go on dates with him, and and they're all like asleep or married and with kids and he ends up very alone and he's in a bar and he meets Bridget Lynn who has also had a very bad day as her Indians have run away with her drugs and uh, they get drunk and then they go back to a hotel room where she passes out and he watches TV and eats massive amounts of room service. He eats hamburgers and french fries and salads and sandwiches and he just eats and eats and eats and eats and eats and it's I love it. It's okay. just, it's such a, a great, the, the whole first half of the film, I think, is, is fantastic. And every time I rewatch Hunking Express, and it's one of my favorite movies, and I rewatch it a lot, uh, it, it, that's the half that doesn't get as much attention because it doesn't have, like, the, the manic pixie Fei Wong. It doesn't have Tony Lung. It's a much uh, kind of sadder uh, story. But it's it's still got a great happy ending, and I just love Takashi Kaneshiro's character. And oh yeah, he's great. Can of pineapple every day until you know his girlfriend will call him, and yeah, it's yeah, it's it's I that's just, a great. Pick. I love that scene. There's 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 no sound. He's just watching movies, sitting in the hotel, you know, reaching up behind him, grabbing French fries at random, and he just eats and eats. And eats. <laughs> oh, gluttony! My favorite <laughs> sin. There's no better eating than lonely eating. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, let's listen to a film that doesn't have hardly any eating in it. Not that I can think of. Bonfire of the Vanities. Why couldn't he just say it to her? Look, Judy, I still love you. I still love our daughter, our home, our life. But I am a master of the universe. I deserve more. Like the few privileged others on Wall Street. How many? Two, three, maybe four hundred at most? For these men, for these masters of the universe? And Sherman McCoy was one of them. There were no limits whatsoever. Five 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 eight seven seven one. Leave a message and I'll call you back. Thank you. 
Maria, where are you? I've been trying to reach for days. Can you call at the office? I need to speak. Jean's on from London. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Calm down, Raleigh. Let's not get overexcited. Yes, Sherman. Calm. Sorry. Collated. Let's not lose our composure over a few hundred million dollars. Jesus Christ, Sherman, you must be made of ice. Just remember, Raleigh, a frantic salesman is a dead woman. So, 1990, Bonfire of the Vanities assembled a remarkable collection of talent, all of whom were either at the peak of their power or just breaking through to superstar status. You had Tom Hanks coming off of uh, Oscar nomination for Big and a series of, of hit comedies. You have Bruce Willis just off of Die Hard. You have Brian De Palma coming off The Untouchables. You have Melanie Griffith after Working Girl. And you have Morgan Freeman fresh from getting uh, Oscar nominated for Driving Miss Daisy. And they all conspired to make a massive bomb. <laughs> an adaptation. A huge failure. An adaptation of Tom Wolfe novel. Uh, Wolfe, who had written the source material for The Right Stuff, one of the uh, better movies of the 1980s, even though I believe that flopped as well, although it got a bunch of award nominations. Uh, he had written a novel that was a kind of a satire of the Reagan era 80s, uh, set in, in Manhattan as. Uh, the character Sherman McCoy, who is a Wall Street financier, has a car accident uh, when he's uh, stuck in the South Bronx. Uh, his car runs over a, a young black youth. Uh, the kid ends up in the hospital, and uh, Sherman McCoy has driven away. It's a it's a hit and run. Well, I think you should point out that he did not run over. Well, we'll, we'll get to okay. that. His, his, <laughs> okay. his car hits it. He's with Melanie Griffith, who is not his wife. Right. Uh, Kim Cattrall is his wife, and she is not at the the peak of her superstardom in 1990. No. That would come much later. What do you mean? Mannequin was way before this. (laughs) Mannequin may be the peak of her acting, (laughs) but it was not the peak of her stardom. Did you you watch Mystery Science Theater 3000? Yeah. Uh, You know, the the robot Crow had a huge crush on Kim Cattrall because she was in all these really crappy movies that they would end up watching on the show and she ended up sending flowers to the production company of uh, MST3K because the robot loved her. <laughs> Alright, that is all we're going to say about Kim Cattrall in this discussion of Bonfire Advantage because there is so much to talk about because there is so much in this film. Uh, the case of the hit and run uh, gets trumped up by a drunken journalist played by Bruce Willis uh, and a uh, opportunistic black minister who is a very thinly disguised Al Sharpton. Uh, and it becomes a kind of a, a cause celebre for the district attorney, played by F. Murray Abraham, who's running for mayor and wants to prove to the uh, citizens of the South Bronx, all of the minorities, that he can be tough on white people because he doesn't like them and he's racist. So he goes after Sherman McCoy, and it ends up in a big trial of the century kind of thing. Sigh. Sigh. <laughs> The film, the film is all over the place in its satire, and it's very obviously a satire, and it it's, seems to hate everybody, except Sherman McCoy, which is kind of the, the problem with the film, is that we're supposed to not like Sherman McCoy, and that is, the, that is apparently what the, the novel, how the novel sets him up. Like, he's not a likable figure in the novel, but because he's cast as Tom Hanks, and it's Tom Hanks in, like, his goofy comic Tom Hanks role, I don't know. I, I think this is the worst performance of Tom Hanks' career. 
And I think it, I think it is kind of what ruins the movie. What do you think ruins the movie? I think everything ruins the movie. <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't hate this movie. I really... I'm, I'm more indifferent to this movie than I am, you know, um, railing against it. Um, but I think almost everything about this movie is wrong. I really do. I, um, you said it's, it's clearly a satire, but to be honest, um, it doesn't read that way for long stretches of the movie, um, which is a shame. Um, and if it was going to be a satire, um, it would need to be funny. And this movie isn't funny at all. I, I didn't laugh once watching this movie. Name one thing that made you laugh in this movie. Pretty much everything that Melanie Griffith does of Thomas Flaherty's. <laughs> but is that because of is is that because of her character? Is that intentional or is it because I think it's intentional and I think I think part of the problem with this is that there's a, a very peculiar style of acting going on. I was gonna mention that. Which is not unusual for Brian De Palma movies, and I think I've, I've seen enough of his movies now, and I've seen enough where I've actually liked them, that I think this is the kind of performance that he's going for, this very kind of ostentatious and theatrical kind of thing. Like, think, like, Piper Laurie and Carrie, where she's just, you know, chewing every bit of the scenery. Like, and I think that's what he wants. It's it's a very odd rhythm that he gets out of his actors. And, and these actors, you know, Bruce Willis, Morgan Freeman, these are, are terrific actors. F. Murray Abraham, who, are, who know how to deliver lines properly and sound naturalistic when they're doing it, but they don't in Bonfire of the Vanities. And I think that's entirely intentional. Well, if it's intentional, I think it's unsuccessful because it... Um, I... You, there's nothing. There's nothing I can connect with in this movie. I I hate everybody, and yeah. and it, I I hate Sherman McCoy. I hate. Um, you're supposed to hate everybody else for the most part. Um, why, I hate Morgan you... Freeman in this. I like. You know, he's supposed to be this like moral center, and he gives this. And this is where I want to you know tie it in with Verdu. The end of the movie uh, ends with him giving this moralizing speech to this outraged courtroom because he's found Sherman McCoy not guilty, um, even though McCoy lied to get himself you know uh, free, even though he's also he is not guilty. Right. But, There's a, an interesting kind of twisted moral conundrum at the end. But anyway, so I hate everybody in this movie, and so. It, I, I need something to latch onto. And I've seen movies where I'm supposed to hate everybody and I can still kind of get with it because the filmmaking um, sells me on that. And this movie doesn't. It's bombastic with nothing. It, it's a hollow center. I, th- I, think you're, I think you're supposed to hate everyone. I think it's, I know. Very, much, it's very much like a, a burn it down kind of thing where, where everybody is fucked up. Everybody lies. Everybody is opportunistic. Everyone... Uh, Are you supposed to hate Morgan Freeman? Is hypocritical. I think so. I don't think you're supposed like, to. I, I think uh, in, in, in the book, his character is, is Jewish, but because the film comes you know, very close to just outright racism in its depiction of like, the other black characters in the movie, uh, the, the De Palma and the producers decided to cast Morgan Freeman in the role. They replaced Alan Arkin. Originally, Alan Arkin. Right, it was supposed to be Alan Arkin. Uh, and they gave him this speech at the end where where he lectures everyone and his basic admonition to them is the moral of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. <laughs> it's, but instead of be decent or instead of be excellent to each other, he says, be decent. Yeah. And I think De Palma is satirizing just how inadequate that advice is. Just be decent. I mean, come on. There's all of these forces at work in this in this in in New York 
to turn all of these people against each other. And that kind of, you know, simplistic formulization, that kind of bromide is, is painfully inadequate to the, to the task of actually, you know, reconstructing the society. That's fair, but I'm going to turn that on its head and say, it's also really simplistic to just make everybody awful. Yes. So I think that's the that's the failing of this movie. Yeah, I think I think I think the problem with with the film is it's not so much that everybody is is unlikable as that there's no uh, there's no nuance. There's there's nothing. That, the satire kind of eats itself. Like there's there's nothing to there's nothing to hold on to. Not just like in a likability exactly. character, but or even any kind of ideal. There's not there's not even like a negative ideal. It's just everything is just ridiculous. And I kind kind of admire that. <laughs> See, I can't. I, 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 in theory, I could um, if it was done right. But for some reason, here it just it didn't work. Like I, I have had a, a contentious relationship with Brian De Palma for for a very long time. Like when when I was young, I watched The Untouchables and loved it, and Carlito's Way and Scarface, and I'm like, yeah. Cute stuff, <laughs> cocaine. Yeah, that's that's great. And then as I got older, I, you know, I started watching like some of his later films, like Snake Eyes and The Black Dahlia, and I absolutely hated them. And, like those those kind of heightened elements of uh, satire and, and hysteria. I no, I just was not able to go along for the ride. Like I have lists of movies uh, that I watch every year, and and Brian De Palma was a regular denizen of the bottom of the list. Mm-hmm. But recently, I've gone back and watched some of his like stuff from the from the seventies and the eighties, his more Hitchcock influenced stuff, and I think I'm starting to kind of get a little more on his wavelength. And I think he he is going for this kind of ultra destructive kind of satire, where where he just wants to to break down the artifice of of everything in this society. But I don't think he has anywhere to like lead us to I was like, just gonna say like, I what's think, I think, left after that exactly like I think Chaplin is exposing these kind of hypocrisies in society and in capitalism and in war but there's there's a heart to Chaplin and there's like a a, a warmth to his human relationships both with his family and with the the young girl that he meets uh that that kind of leavens that satire and and makes it you know more meaningful Whereas De Palma is just destructive, and I can like admire the artistry of his destruction, but I can't really like the movie. Yeah, I and and you know he's he's clearly a capable filmmaker in certain respects. Watching this movie, um, the movie famously opens with like a five minute tracking shot that, as as a as a piece of technical achievement. Is very well done, and it actually reminded There's, me of Hard Boiled. The the filmmaking in the film, just the the placement of the camera and the movement of the camera, is exceptional. I'll I'll, I'll throw out the film. Yeah, like the compositions, he does a lot of like overhead and 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 uh, low angle shots of the actors are very striking. And, and but there's probably the most famous trick the Palm is known for is the split screen, mm-hmm. which appears here once. Um, I I really like the split screen. To me, it you were we were just talking about flashiness and just calling attention to yourself. Oh, De Palma it, calls attention to himself all the time. Like I he know. never films anything without neon lights and, and, <laughs> I, I, and I know. flashing sparklers around it. And it, I want like why? I, I don't know. It seems too heavy-handed in that moment. Basically, the scene is it's the preacher, the Al Sharpton-esque preacher. 
um, preparing to go on TV with a rally um, to call for justice for this boy that's in a coma. Um, and we get on the left side of the screen, we get him in getting makeup on, preparing to go on screen, and then Bruce Willis talking to Geraldo, <laughs> um, who they're debating whether he's sincere or not. And obviously the, the makeup, getting shown in makeup is showing that he's an opportunistic, you know, jerk or whatever, just like everybody else. Um, but it, it just seems so, the, the, it was, it's the, a sledgehammer. The, the, the really elegant thing about that setup, though, is is uh, while keeping the, the Sharpton figure on the left, the right-hand split screen cuts to a television of uh, right. showing, Murray, showing Sharpton yeah. speaking and then F. Murray Abraham watching that and then we go into the next scene. I think it's a really clever transitional device. Uh, I, it didn't work for me. It, it seemed it seemed useless. <laughs> I, I think they could have done the same thing with traditional cutting. I'm not saying that you need to be traditional, but it seemed like it seemed like if he was going to do the split screen, he could have done it at a number of different points in the movie um, just as well um, to service the story. And he just did it here because he's like, "I'm going to throw my split screen in. I'll do it right here." <laughs> Maybe I mean I. I'm sorry. It just it kind of wanting wanting Brian De Palma to be you know more normal and more restrained kind of seems counterproductive to me. Well, it's like wanting Charlie Chaplin to be more. Why don't you you know experiment with editing? No, I know, but I wish I like I wish he would like give me more split screens. Then just don't like if you're just gonna do one, that's the one you're gonna do. I don't know. It just it it just rubbed me the wrong way. Okay, you know. Uh, most of what Tom Hanks does rubs me the wrong way. Like, he, he does, like, this eye-bugging thing that he used to do in the 80s all the time where he's, like, shocked and he, like, pulls this really weird face that, thankfully, he gave up on shortly after Bonfire of the Vanities. And maybe it was, like, the negative notices from this that got him to become more restrained as an actor. Like, uh, you know, in Philadelphia, he's much more normal, even though he's playing a very similar kind of character. Uh, he's got AIDS, though. You'll like him. <laughs> Play Chaplin's wife's in a wheelchair, you know. One of the the criticisms that, that De Palma has made of the film is with the the casting of Hanks, that he thought he should have gone with uh, with John Lithgow, with somebody who could have uh, made the character more unlikable, kind of uh, gotten uh, more of the sense of entitlement that the that Sherman McCoy had, and and thus made him less of an everyman. So so the end of the film doesn't read so triumphant. Mm-hmm. I that's a, I think I think that makes that that's makes a valid point. I'll, I'll give De Palma that because um, one of Tom Hanks's qualities as an actor is you always like him. Yeah, you kind of def- defer to him. Um, yeah, although one of the the one it might be the only scene in the movie where I, I got a little bit of joy, and I think it's taken if you take it out of the picture, that's where the joy is. Is uh, I do really love Tom Hanks going crazy and shooting his shotgun everywhere. That, that's a, that's a very funny scene. That's a very good scene. Uh, well, the the problem if if Sherman McCoy is likable, then it throws the rest everyone else in the film. It makes them much more right. unlikable, and it makes the film seem much more racist than it actually is, because. 
when uh, when Hanks and, and Griffith end up in the South Bronx, it's it's this you know post apocalyptic vision. Of, yeah, like, it's there's, ridiculous. there's it's it's ridiculously over the top. There's like prostitutes and pimps and, and gang members. Fires and burning, fires, and fires burning everywhere. It's like Escape from New York, yeah. even though you know they just took they missed one exit on on the freeway and yeah. they've ended up in you know this hellish place and it's supposed to be that way because that's how they view the place with with minorities like melody griffith says like where did all the white people go <laughs> to, to De palma's credit he does this does do something relatively subtle in that scene where he keeps the camera in the car yeah for most of it until they actually have the the, the until hanks gets out of the car yeah. um he keeps the car in there which you know, even though everything around it is so ridiculous, it kind of puts you, yeah, in their perspective, and you kind of, you happen to just get involved in it, too. You get a little worked up in it. Well, yeah, I mean, but but the whole point of it is that these people are, are insane. That you well, know, the, South Bronx, the South Bronx, even in 1989 or clearly. 1990, is not that bad. Yeah, clearly. Uh, but he's, but he... But because, but because Hanks is so sympathetic, because we like him so much... It makes us really hard to see him as a deluded racist. Yeah, and that it, it decenters the film. Whereas instead of satirizing everyone, where instead of like exposing the hypocrisies of, of Sharon McCoy, it's it's making us root for him against the opportunistic black people that are trying to get him in jail. Well, I think this movie's, I think this movie's more sexist than it is racist. Like. I think the the female characters, um, Melanie Griffith, Kim Cattrall, you know, they when we're talking about Verdue, we said you know the characters are kind of one note there because they're you know they all kind of fall into these archetypes or whatever. But um, the the women in this movie get the shortest end of the stick here, and it's it, it is not pretty. Cattrall is a more sympathetic portrayal as really. <laughs> more sympathetic than Melanie Griffith because she doesn't do anything morally wrong. She's just this very uptight, upper-class wasp woman who's very much locked into her own world and can't handle any any kind of shaking through it. You know, I mean, the most positive uh, female portrayal in the film is probably Kirsten Dunst as the little girl <laughs> who has, like, one scene. That scene is horrible. That's yeah. probably the worst scene in the entire movie, yeah. I must say. Uh... Daddy, what do you do for a living? Bonds. <laughs> daddy, daddy gives people pie and takes the crumbs. It's like, oh my god, are you freaking kidding me? Yeah, it's bad. I mean, there there are no there are no good women in the film. Even like the the poor kid's mom, you know, who's to like this, oh, yeah. this this grieving mother who you know oh, needs horrible. needs to go shopping, yeah, to get some nice clothes, yeah, just despicable stuff, yeah. Uh, but you see what I'm saying? How it it uh, if if he's likable, then it's not everybody is evil. It's everybody else is evil, and because he's like the rich white man, the the film puts us in the position of of disliking all of these minorities and women that are being mean to him. Right. Well, yeah, I would. You're right, and like like you said with uh, De Palma's criticism of the movie, I I can see it working a little bit better. I, I mean. To be honest, I, I mean, I didn't love Tom Hanks. You know, I, did, I didn't think I, this character was the hero of this movie. I think I if you put, like, like, Dan Aykroyd from the first half of Trading Places in this part, <laughs> the movie makes a lot more sense, and it works a lot better if he's that kind of, like, snooty, upper-class, blue-blood, financier guy. I, th- I think the movie works a lot better that way. Well, the, the other thing that doesn't make sense to me is 
is Bruce Willis in the bookends of the film. Like, I think we're supposed oh, to take some kind of moral conf- um, conclusion about it. Uh, Willis is this drunken journalist who is caught onto the story. He trumps it up, but he ends up, you know, saving Tom Hanks in the end by giving him the exculpatory evidence. Uh, and then he writes a book about it and becomes a big financial success, even though he's still drunk. And I don't, he, he uses this line in like the beginning of the film and the end of the film where, uh, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And his implication is that is that Willis has gained the whole world but lost his soul. I don't see where he lost it. I don't think he ever had it. I mean, is the I mean, I, you know, that that's the thing. Is you talk about going, But he does the right thing. Like he feels bad for what happens to Sherman through his own actions and he helps him out. Does he feel bad though? I mean, I think, I think he really does. I think he, he, you know, he he like picks him up after he's arraigned. He's kind of disgusted with himself. He takes him home. He, you know, he tracks down the the evidence that will set him free. See, I I read it more as an, uh, you know, I I read it more as him being jilted by the fact that all these other reporters were scooping his his beat or whatever. Like he's the one that broke the story, um, and well, everybody that's, else. That's his initial frustration at the at the arraignment, but then. But then he meets Hanks. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. I just like I said, I couldn't sympathize with any character because I didn't think any character had a moral center, and I think he is included. I will say this though, um, it was refreshing. It's nice to see Bruce Willis doing a role other than you know nowadays he just does action movie after action movie, and he himself I think recently said, "I'm really bored with action movies," but he keeps yeah. making them because it's a good paycheck or whatever. Um, unfortunately, I think the character is incredibly underwritten and doesn't get a lot to do in this movie but I do like seeing Bruce Willis doing stuff like this or you know branching out from that mold that he's kind of got himself stuck in uh, in the last 15 years or whatever yeah he he somehow got typecast as like diehard whereas that's not how he started like I I, you're probably too young to have seen Moonlighting I remember Moonlighting he was uh, he was amazing that was my favorite show when I was yeah you know, he did comedy he did yeah yeah he was more of a comic actor than than an action star like you know like a Michael Keaton or or Tom Hanks right yeah so you know that you know it's a it's a um, it's unfortunate that you get to see him and it's it's kind of tantalizing here but the character is pretty useless <laughs> um, yeah as like, written like I, I think I think uh, Hank's character is mischaracterized and that throws the the whole point of the movie off. I think Willis's character just just does not make sense to me. Like yeah. I, I it just doesn't fit into the whole scheme of the film I agree either in the version where McCoy is likable or where he's unlikable. It's just I don't I don't know what to do with 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 this reporter. I agree with you. Yeah, I I don't get it. So I mean, uh, what what uh, what is your experience with Palm? I talked I talked a little bit about mine because he has uh, a lot of detractors, but he has some very passionate defenders. I don't. I uh, I I can't speak to De Palma. Um, yeah, I haven't watched any De Palma. Um, I know I know I've seen parts of De Palma, and you know I I thought I'd seen this before when I when it was, I was younger, but I confuse it with the War of the Roses, okay. uh, which I've seen, and you know it, it's all jumbled in my head. So I I really can't say for De Palma. Um, I, I don't know enough about his stuff, but, um, you know, like I, going off of this film, I think he's capable as a visual stylist. Um, but he is it, I, he's very clunky in his execution. 
you know. Um, I don't know if, uh, who are detractors because I know I seem to just know of people that are rabid De Palma uh, proselytizers. Yeah, like uh, mostly like film critics, cinephile types. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very pro De Palma. Uh, the detractors. The rest of the world. Everyone. Okay, else. okay, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I mean I'm trapped in that little bubble of the the you know the nerds or whatever. You're right. I yeah. mean I mean he hasn't had a hit in uh, forever. I mean, what was the last movie that De Palma made that actually Mission got... Mission Impossible? Probably, huh? Yeah, 1996. Yeah. I mean, um, Black Dahlia, Femme Fatale, Redacted, I mean, Mission to Mars. I mean, the guys made a lot of, you know... Um, poorly received. Poorly films. received films. And, you know, Bonfire's Vanities, uh, I was just checking uh, prior to this discussion, it was nominated for five awards at the Razzies. Yes, the Razzies. Uh, but it didn't win any, which I think... I think that's the best way of summing this movie up for me is it doesn't deserve to win a Razzie. <laughs> uh, I, I would I would recommend to you the uh, the De Palma Hitchcock movies. That I do want to see those. Uh, Obsession, which is kind of a variation on Vertigo, and Body Double, which is also Vertigo but also Rear Window, yeah. and uh, Dress to Kill, which is a variation on Psycho. All th- all three of those I enjoyed very much. Yeah, I should I should check those out. And I saw I saw that your reviews on Letterboxd for those, and they definitely. Um, you know, garnered my attention, so somewhere down the line. All right, so uh, as uh, Bonfire of the Vanities is all kind of all over the place, and this is also our uh, poultry eating episode, here <laughs> is the magnetic fields with a chicken with its head cut off. <laughs> fields uh that's it for our show this week next week we'll be back with a discussion of the recent film um, computer chess which just recently came out on dvd and on netflix and all that other stuff uh and we're going to tie that in with Sachit ray's film the chess players um we'll also be discussing our cinema central american indie of the last 10 years and talking about terrence malick whose birthday will be falling uh, in that week uh, you can find us online at thegeorgesandershow.blogspot.com, on Twitter at geosandershow, and you can email us at thegeorgesandershow at gmail.com. 
if you are in the Seattle area, you should be going to the Grand Illusion often, and especially next week, they're playing on 35mm Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven, uh, November 29th through December 5th. Go see it. We played, it's probably actually the same print that we played several years ago. It, it's great. It's a great movie. It's one of my favorite movies, and it's Terrence Malick's best movie. It's not Terrence Malick's best movie, but it's a great movie. You should go see it, uh, just like you should go see every Terrence Malick movie whenever you can. If you are in the Bay Area, you can go down to Palo Alto to the Stanford Theater, uh, where they are doing a wonderful series uh, through the end of the year. Uh, it's double features, Preston Sturgis and the Marx Brothers, and they're going in order, um, or roughly in order, um, and running one film by each, each week. So, um, so this week... Uh, November 28th through December 1st, they're going to be showing The Lady Eve and pairing it with Monkey Business, uh, which I think are my second favorite films from both of those people. The Lady uh, Eve is my favorite, Sturgis. It might be my favorite, too. Um, it might be. It's it's tough. They, they duke them out, you know. Yeah. Um, but I love Monkey Business. Um, I think it's better than Night at the Opera. Um, I agree with that. Yeah, it's such a fun movie. So anyway, yeah, go, go to the Stanford Theater. It's a wonderful movie palace. All right, that's it for this week. Uh, here's George. Happy Thanksgiving. You must remember this. A kiss is just a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by And when two lovers woo They still say I love you On that you can rely No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of date Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man And man must have his mate That no one can deny It's still the same old story A fight for love and glory A case of do or die The world will always welcome lovers As time